It's about mindset, it's about entrepreneurship, and it's about career growth. Whatever we consume on a daily basis will mm. definitely influence us. It felt so amazing that there just wasn't any going back. I couldn't give myself plan B. It has to be commit to plan A. In a while, huh? Yeah. Oh, really? Am I your like, first guest? Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Today we had an incredibly insightful conversation. Myself and Dia sat down with Trevor McFarlane, a good friend of ours, and also the CEO and founder of Amir Emerging Research and Intelligence Network, the premier network of high-level CEOs uh, and regional heads of various companies across the Middle East. Trevor is in a very unique position, the bridge point between the government and the private sector. He has access to all sorts of information and data that back up some very interesting perspectives. We touched on everything from Dubai's foray into Web3 and the metaverse, and also, very interestingly, why the Middle East has a very positive outlook for the next 12 to 18 months, given what's happening across the world, across Europe, across the US, macroeconomics, and all that fun stuff. So stay tuned. You're going to have a different perspective after listening to this. It was a very insightful conversation, and thank you as always for listening to the content that we try and put out. Please, any feedback in the comments, very, very welcome. Enjoy the show. And we're back. It has been a minute. We are here, sat with Mr. Trevor McFarlane, a very good friend of ours, and also the founder and CEO of Amir Research and Intelligence. Trevor, um, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome we would. We would... <laughs> it's always great to see you guys, <laughs> even in front of a studio full of cameras. I, um, no, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Usually my demographic is is sixty one year old males, <laughs> so I know you guys speaking have to a new audience. Today. Yes, so we thank have. You very we much. do have a slightly different audience, but I think <laughs> not that I think I know a lot of what you have to say is going to be very relevant to that audience. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, SME leaders at different levels, uh, all looking to find an edge, uh, understand more about the markets, um, make sense of the chaos that we're seeing around the world, um, and I think that you are very well positioned to help us share some knowledge with them. We'll see about that. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so look, we'll start out with, um, in, in your own words, what is Amir? Yeah. What value do you add and why have you been successful over the last few years? Sure. So Amir is, an, a, I guess, a boutique advisory firm and a research company. And that boutique advisory part of it is evolving very quickly. Mm. And where a lot of people around Dubai and the region would know us is from our main product called Boardroom by Amir. This is an intelligence network for CEOs, government officials, and other high-functioning, high-performing individuals. And I founded Amir almost 10 years ago, and I was working at another intelligence research company in the region focused on the, on the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of spent the last 15 years or so moving around the Middle East. I was living in Istanbul, then Doha, then Riyadh, then Abu Dhabi, and then Dubai. And I left that other organization, which is a great organization, great brand, great people, very clever. And while I was there, basically, I was going around and talking to other CEOs, and they were telling me, look, we love what you do at that, that great organization, my former employer, <laughs> and we really need that macro story, particularly for reporting into Global HQ, et cetera. But what I really want is I want to know what the government is thinking. And if I'm taking time out of my day, 
I want to go and connect with with peers, with other CEOs. Mm. And I'm not a genius. I heard that several times and I thought, okay, there's something in that. Mm -hmm. So I did something incredibly stupid. <laughs> That's how the good story starts. Always. Which, <laughs> my, I think my superpower is stupidity. <laughs> I, I don't agree, but we'll, well, listen. we'll listen. Well, well, let's see. It, it turned out very advantageous, but at the time, or, or probably better said, looking at it now, when I think about what I did, uh, I can't believe it. You know, I just think. That Would you was, do it again? <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a good question, but this is the teaser for the show, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we just cut it as soon as he says, "I can't believe what I did." <laughs> so, when I think about it now, because you're older and you have a, a, a modicum of more wisdom, perhaps, and you realize, probabilistically speaking, the chances of this working are so mm. low. But because I was younger and dumber, I yeah. couldn't see that. Brilliant. Mm. Ignorance so, is bliss. Sometimes. So basically <laughs> what I did, I had I had my life savings, which wasn't a lot. It was a big chunk of change. It was everything I had then. And I left that company and I went and hired the ballroom of Burj Al Arab. Mm. Oh, that's a good story. <laughs> and basically what I did was I invited anybody I knew and I, out of my own savings, paid for everything, invited everybody, stood up on stage and started talking about what was happening in the region. And basically, obviously, I had no infrastructure, no team, nothing really. And I had some very good friends, one of whom actually, I won't mention what company still works for. He's an engineer and he left the site and put on a suit and he oh. got a clipboard Oh, and there was wow. nothing on that clipboard. <laughs> and people walked in as these different senior leaders oh, walked in. He that. was saying, yes, very welcome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and because that's how you start, right? You need yeah. to put your best foot forward. That's brilliant. Man. So that was our first, first briefing. And I basically just built it up from there. Um, we, we brought lots of people in. And then you're trying to convince them, okay, this is these are the benefits of becoming a, a member of this. And over time, I refined what was of value to them. Hmm. Because again, you don't really know what hmm. you're doing, right? You're in this huge ocean of uncertainty. You don't know what the right thing to do is all the time. And also, I was on my own. So I was writing the reports. I was delivering the talks. I was selling. And I was so, so bad at selling. I'm sure that's not the case. No, honestly. <laughs> why do you say that? <laughs> I can tell you why, because maybe I won't mention his name. I told him actually not so long ago, the president, well, he's now over international markets for one of the a household name, one of the biggest companies in the world. And at the time he was the president for Middle East and Africa. And he, he's the guy in terms of this network who you'd really want to get in and see. He came to one of our sessions and he was obviously impressed enough to, to have a meeting with me, right? Mm. So I went and met him in his office and I was so bad, so bad at selling. I sat there, we chit-chatted and when it came to the part of, okay, well, this is what I do and would you like to, I didn't know how to do it. So I said, okay, thanks for everything and walked out it off. What? <laughs> yes, because I, I didn't know how to bring it up and I, I had been working as an analyst. So wow, okay. I didn't have as much experience of that on the commercial side okay. and for me, talking about money and it was kind of a bit hard nosed and I was like, Oh, how do I do that? <laughs> and then I, I guess it was, yeah, a couple of years ago I met him again and I told him, yeah. you know, I, I said to him, you're my white whale. 
Nice. You know, because obviously since then, then, you know, you start reading lots of books, listening to books. You recognize that sales is really about helping somebody. Yeah. Right. You find mm. out, okay, what, what issues are you having? And then you help them. Mm. And now it genuinely frustrates me when someone doesn't become a member of our network because I'm thinking, ah, oh, but you're going to miss out on so much, right? Yeah. So that was a big, a big Interesting. part of the evolution and mm. then shifting into that. And then obviously bringing the team on board and everything again, it's just another phase of not knowing how to do something, mm. you know? And how did you pivot from, you started out building a community, right? Before you actually started selling to that community. So it's mm -hmm. listening to the community, building them, adding value, adding value, adding value, and then trying to pivot that into something that would actually turn into a business. Um, at what point after that first, uh, as you said, you used a lot of your own money or most of your own money at the time, um, hiring out the ballroom. How quickly did you have to move that into a revenue stream and how did you, mm. how did you do that? How did you determine what, what are you giving for free so you could still build the community whilst actually then turning it into a revenue stream? And the reason I ask that, maybe context for the answer, is that there are a lot of people that would be listening to this and, and that are out there that are influencers, let's say. They're, they're building communities. They're adding value in their own way to their communities, but they struggle to move it from community to, to, to revenue stream. Monetize. So although the subject matter is different and how you did it is different, there, there are some similarities mm -hmm. there with people trying to go from community to revenue. Yeah, there's certainly commonality. Um, for me, it's a case of with the level or caliber of individuals that we're dealing with, mm. for me, it was always an instinct that you need to show them enough value and deal with them in a very sophisticated way. You're not trying to just crush and turn them into a sale, yeah. right? <clears throat> you're bringing them in. It, you're also trying to figure out what the value is for them. And once mm. I figured out what that value was, by simply listening to them and hearing it over and over. Oh, Trevor, you're onto something. I like what you're doing, but yeah. you should do this. You refine that, mm. you refine that and and go back. And then once there's there's a, there's a kind of a, a precipice where once you figure it out then everything shifts into this new new phase. Mm. Um, and for me, I again, I didn't have a team. I partnered with these kind of sales guys who were basically on a 100% commission. If they sold, they'd, they'd done very well. Okay. And I worked with them for a while and they, they were quite helpful, but it didn't really, it didn't really work. Hmm. And then once I actually, you know, paradoxically, once I took control of everything myself, then I was able to listen to clients. The main thing is just listen to clients, hear what they're saying and, and shift into that mode as soon as you can, which is very difficult. Because you don't have the resources, right? Yeah. It's like being a fourth division football club, right? Yeah. You have aspirations of being able to do everything the way you want to do it. Yeah. You have aspirations of hiring the people you want to hire. Yeah. Mm. Um, but you're not in that league to be able to attract them or to be able to do things the way you want them done. Yeah. So it's this constant, and, and that's why entrepreneurship is so difficult because you need to have something wrong with you. I think to to start a business. <laughs> Honestly, I said this first, one of the first, first questions you ever asked me. Yeah. yeah. So what's wrong with you? Yeah, Be, because you need to because it, a sane person would go and work for a good yeah. company with a yeah, good yeah. culture, have good work life balance. <laughs> um, like yeah. that's that's the sane thing to do. Like when people say, "Well, what advice would you give me for starting a business?" I say, "Don't start a business. Mm -hmm. Make you have to mm -hmm. be a hundred percent sure that you're willing to sacrifice." 
So many things. Relationships, friends. I had friends when I was starting Amir. And totally understandably, they ask you out, you know, what are you doing the weekend? I'm working. Yeah. That happens six, seven mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Then they stop asking and I don't blame them. Yeah. And you, you sacrifice all of this for something that is very low probability of working. Yeah. That's why I say, looking back to your point earlier, <laughs> would I do it again, even where I am now? If I knew what I had to do, mm. probably not. Interesting. If I didn't know, I think <laughs> that's, that's where the, the benefit of not knowing what's coming next, because you don't know how big a challenge actually yeah, is. Absolutely. And you're yeah. naive and you think, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And then it, you're confronted by the real magnitude of it. Mm. And then you're thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm in it now, so I'm going yeah. to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's also very valuable and true to the different levels that we kind of grow in as a business. You know, mm -hmm. when we're kind of, like I said, there's, there's thresholds to any kind of business. And as it grows, we feel like we're now stepping into like level two or level three of the business, but we still don't know like what that means yeah. and the magnitude of like, how do we then need to manage the business? And it, uh, to me, at least, it, it really feels like that first step again, but in a new phase or in a new era, every time we're expanding, every time we're, you know, we, we go, okay, well, this is a new level. So like, what do we do here? I don't know. <laughs> this is the I first know, time we're here. I know exactly, <laughs> so, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, that resonates with me a lot. And, and because we've over like 350 individuals as, as members, right? So we've well over 200 companies now, I, I think as part of the, the, the main product that we have in, in Boardroom. And when you're the central node of that network, you're, you just literally have constantly every day people coming to you and they're all very high caliber, high functioning people with these tremendous ideas. Oh, we should do this. We should do mm. that, you know? And there's meetings where I'm coming out of now. I had a meeting a few days ago where something, and this is the power of just sharing with people. You know, I have this idea and it's mm. really, and I said to the guy, it's really just a pipe dream. But I said it to him because I thought it was, He'd influence in this particular mm. area that maybe it was something that would just land in his mind. Several months later, we have this meeting and you walk out of that meeting and it, and it feels like that's a life changing meeting. Whereas mm. usually you only get that with the benefit of retrospect. There's people yeah. I met 10 years ago where yeah. I realized ah, meeting that person. That was a life changing moment. Mm. You know, his highness Sheikh Nayan bin Mubarak Al Nahyan. It was very, very good to me in, in Abu nice. Dhabi. And I remember I'd left my employer. I started putting on these sessions and I had interviewed him and I had, I won't go into all the stories, but mm. genuinely just went out of his way to help me with, there was no way I could even be of any value or, or mm. return to him. And then I went to Abu Dhabi. I went to Majlis. And he, he, he knew already because we'd been, I guess, messaging. And I told him I was leaving this other brand, which was a, a, a big, you know, well-established, credible brand. And I said to him, but this is what I'm doing now. And I was at the very embryonic mm. stage mm. of this. And I said, I'm hosting, the, I'm hosting a, a briefing. And all I wanted was to put it under his patronage, you know, because I figured, oh, that, that would help build some credibility for me. And so I asked them, and again, I was terrible at kind of sales and influence. And <laughs> that's a big ask as well, though, isn't it? That's yeah. the power of stupidity. I mean, that's, it's a really big ask. <laughs> it is, though. That's the power of, yeah. of... Now, we had a relationship, and he's sure. very good to me. I'd see him a lot, and he was 
I don't honestly know why I've said this mm. to my, I don't know why you've helped me so much. Yeah. And it's a very uneven friendship because I can't pay anything back. But he seems to be a person that just enjoys, mm. yeah, you know, happiness is found yeah, in helping yeah. other people, right? So I said to him, you know, your excellency, it would be excellent if, if I could just, you know, mm. put your name on the, on the session itself. And I'll never forget, he said, um, when is it? And I told him the date. What time is it? <laughs> um, and, I, and he just said, I'll be there. Said, wow. Thank wow. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and he came and he landed his helicopter in the top of Burj Al Arab. Is that the, vid the video? Yeah, oh, and wow. that was a little bit in, we were a little bit in at that stage, you yeah. know? But it was still this big, big boost. For sure. of course. And I remember we, because then you're able to invite a lot of other interesting people yeah, off the of back course. of that, right? And yeah. they're curious. Mm. They're like, mm. who's this Irish guy that is able to do this? It gives, so the, it gives the, you the credibility. Yeah, there's a level mm. of just curiosity. And I remember, I think he was supposed to come at, uh, I guess it would have been 9.45. So we go for the break at 9.30. This mm. is the old structure that we had. And he was supposed to come at 9.45. So everyone goes for the break. And I'm just standing there. I'm thinking, this is a big deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all I hear is, wow, the helicopter coming. I went up to the thing and he was excellent. He was absolutely excellent. And we were bringing the private sector together yeah. to, to gauge them on policy regarding amortization. So there was a lot of value. And that mm. was another kind of realization in my mind. Okay, the government needs to hear the collective thoughts of the private sector. And these are government-led, state-led economies. Mm. The private sector very much need to know what the government are thinking. Absolutely. And that was another then step. And that was a point of differentiation from what anyone else was able to do. Mm. Mm. And that was another another realization then yeah i think i think from the from the story and perhaps like a note for the listeners is like you, you only get what you ask for you yeah know what i mean if you if you don't have the sort of like guts to, to ask for what you what you want um you probably that wouldn't have happened right? absolutely so. <laughs> absolutely yeah. and i guess this i someone else told me this uh, he's a he's a billionaire here in dubai very very successful guy and very successful in every facet of his life not money. Mm. That's what I'm what I'm saying. Successful, right? Great family life, great balance, great self-control and perspective. And he, he said to me once, and I, I didn't realize it about myself. He'd said to me, I was like you when I was your age. I wasn't afraid to go over and and talk to people who perhaps I shouldn't have spoken to. And mm. I realized, yeah. Walking into yeah. a Magellus and yeah. sitting down and saying, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's all these little up micro signals and micro opportunities yeah. that you don't recognize that you, you need to be mindful and realize. Mm. And that's also just the power of, of network and networking, yeah. right? Yeah. And understanding really what networking is, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think I run a network. And that's another kind of learning that I've had of what networking really is. And you see that as adding value rather than what you can extract from the network. But it's it's basically, you, you know, if you're thinking about networking and you're you're starting a business or you have a business, the best way to look at it is, first of all, a rule of networking is forget about networking, mm -hmm. right? Instead, what you need to do is you need to focus on building real connections right and um, not just contacts we can have yeah. thousands literally thousands and thousands of contacts yeah and 
what I've realized is when you have a crisis in your life, whether it's career or anything, who comes to your, to your aid? It's not contacts, nor, mm. nor should they. Mm. It's yeah. friends, right? It's people who you have a, a stronger, profound connection with. And that's what you're better off doing. Focus on people who you have a natural rapport with. Don't mm. try force things. And have kind of maybe five, 10 max, but let's say five people mm. who are very, very close connections, who you meet with, you regularly support, mm. and it's a two-way system in terms mm. of value. And then what happens if you have that career crisis, you're you know, let go from your job or your startup mm. fails or you need funding, those five people will tap into the five people that they're close to. And mm. there's a multiplier effect. And then the other rule would be to focus on relevance, right? There's a lot of people just think that they're going to, there's a networking event. I never go to networking events. Literally, I try to avoid all events in Dubai. Most of them, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are a complete waste of time. And you're going and networking with all these random people. Mm. It may, it's a comp you're better yeah. off doing your work. Mm. Yeah. Instead, focus on relevance. If you want to be, you know, I don't know, the best accountant in the Middle East, go and join a network for accountants. Mm. If you're a leader, go and join a network where there's mm. other leaders and you're connecting with people of, of relevance. Um, and then to your point, the last, the last factor as I see it would be this idea of people see networking as transactional. And that's where there's a, a problem. Instead, it should be about giving. Mm. So you should really give wherever possible, 99.9% .9 of the time. Usually I have a pretty strong network and I'll only ask somebody something, you know, a, a serious, a, you know, a serious request. I'll ideally never ask anyone. Mm. Ideally yeah. never. Instead, you just, you just give, 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 give. And then through the power of, you know, the reciprocal nat nature of, of human beings, you build connection, that person wants to help you. And it's not transactional, it's, it's like, genuine. Ah, it's yeah, yeah. genuine, it's a rapport, mm. it's a connection, it's an energy between people. And that's, that's where value is created. And then again, to your point earlier about community, that's how community is really created. Sure. Mm. And people see at the center of that commun community, they see you as genuine, they mm. see you have a genuine energy and they, they see, ah, this guy is trustworthy. Mm. He's going to do exactly what he says and he has a certain set of values and that's that. So networking, you have to be really, really careful with it. Mm. You don't just waste a ton of your time. Yeah, I did that in the early days. I was going to all sorts yeah. because I didn't have an understanding of yeah. what was good and what was bad. I was just like, I need to meet people. So I'd go to all these yeah. like mixers where you just stand around and have a drink and then just bump into people and hope And maybe Tom, at, at, this, at the start, as you come into a place yeah. like Dubai, you know, mm. maybe that's not the worst thing, right? Because there's that's, also just a, a well, social- yeah. It's a starting point. Yeah, yeah, a social aspect of it, right? You're literally just plugging into- You've also got a lot of time then as well. Tell me about the first time. Where, yeah, where there that? you go. What was that? Was that like uh, a night out and I was with Chris? Yeah, I think no, yeah, that, was, that, was out, that was out with friends. It's slightly different, but yeah. I mean, I used to literally Well, go, it, it, didn't, it didn't turn <laughs> yeah. out to be a waste no. anyway. No, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't a waste. But no, I, I meant, so earlier than that, in the really early days, yeah. I would go to down to 
a random bar just or place and, and yeah, just yeah. there'd be people stood around yeah. having a drink and I would just try and meet people and yeah. be like, this is well, what that, I, that sounds what I creepy. Do. That just <laughs> sounds <laughs> creepy. I think, I think half of them were like- I go to random bars and I just try to talk to people. <laughs> Stand around. Honestly, I think half of them were like masquerading as like, like singles meeting each other. Yeah, like, I really yeah. think that was that that was part of it. But anyway, that wasn't, was that wasn't the reason. <laughs> that wasn't the reason I was going to these things. But, okay, um, okay. but yeah, I joined like a, you know the like BNI network mm. and stuff like that. Which when yeah. you when you're small and and you need to tap into connections. Yeah. If you're sat in a room and someone's whether it's because of a framework that's actively trying to bring you business and they've been here for twenty years and you've been here for <clears> two <throat> months, it's going to be beneficial, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think as you maybe. When you're a bit more refined and you know what you're doing and maybe exactly. you're a few years into it, you need to be very selective with your time. Yeah. yeah. Very selective in terms of who you spend time with. Absolutely. And why. That's and your commodity. That's your currency, right? That's, I mean, that's time it. is what you're spending with. A hundred percent. And yeah. and to your point earlier about different phases, it, it was yesterday, right? So I have this amazing colleague, Mariam, who helps me be more efficient, right? And she's just brilliant. And because we had a series of roundtables the other day, like my WhatsApp's, were a mess you know mm. they're just like like uh emails and marianne does manage all my emails and help me with that and she sends me voice notes on you know Maybe. different requests and then mm. i'll voice note back and then she's able to do it so it's a nice efficient way of doing it and to your point around phases i was going catching up on all of these there was like 16 of these messages and i'm going through and i'm listening to them and i realized the things i'm saying no to now you know even five years ago mm. The things I'm saying no to now, it actually dawned on me in the message where I was saying, well, I can't mention, but the, the people you're saying no to, yeah. you realize ah, I'm in a totally different phase mm. now. Yeah. Mm. And and it's not that, you know, no sounds like has a very negative connotation. It's not that those people aren't creating value. Of course they are. It's just, it's an opportunity cost and you only have so many hours in the day and I don't want to work, yeah. you know, insane into the night. I want to spend time with my wife. So yeah. Yeah. There's a trade-off. My wife's yeah. more important than no matter who that person is. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think that the, the understanding opportunity cost, especially as time becomes more precious, I think is one of the one of the key things that that people can get wrong because yeah. as you said, they look at it and their mindset might still be from five years earlier and they were like, That's still an opportunity I want. But then when you when they sit back or they get into it, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I actually don't have time for this. Yeah. Um, which can be can be a challenge. Um pivoting slightly in terms of conversation, you you touched on it earlier. You provide the link between the private sector and and the government in ma in many areas. You know, I've been fortunate enough to come to quite a few of your events, and I've I've seen that in action where you've got government ministers um, talking about what the what the government's plans are around really interesting um, areas of our economy, um, and and certainly future tech. We're talking AI. We're talking Web three. We're talking crypto, metaverse, and all of these all of these things that are that are certainly on trend at the moment and something that Dubai specifically is really putting their best foot forward in and trying to capture as much of it as possible in terms of, uh, in terms of global positioning. Um, it would be interesting to hear from your perspective with the information that you're getting from the government as to where some of the near-term opportunities potentially lie uh, for those that are in Dubai trying to build businesses in Dubai. Yeah, sure. Look, I think what's interesting is... <laughs> Dubai, the UAE more broadly, when you look around the world, what is happening is probably one of the best places in the world to be at the moment. And it's so interesting because when you think of during COVID and when COVID came, if you were inventing 
a pandemic or a crisis to damage an economy like specifically Dubai. And you also take into account, think of say, for example, British tabloids have historically really had a, a negative go at, at Dubai. Mm. And always the, the commentary was, you know, Dubai is a house of cards, etc. And you factor in what's happened over the, the last few years, where you think of what did COVID impact trade, transport, tourism, what is Dubai's economy all of those things, yeah. fundamentally built on those aspects. And not only did the house of cards not fall, mm. it came out to be one of the strongest Stronger, places yeah. in the world. Yeah. So I think that's an important aspect in terms of for, for your, um, for your community in terms of just being based in a place like Dubai. And then in addition to that, what was advantageous about COVID purely from an economic and policy perspective was that because of the form of government here and they move, they're very agile and move mm. very quickly. And during COVID actually, right from the start, and this is maybe a bit of a, a uh, going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it also just speaks to how nimble they are. And from our perspective at Amir, we host these large private sessions. We don't really advertise about them. There's selection criteria of who mm -hmm. can attend, et cetera. And you don't need to be a genius to figure out when the pandemic came, we, we used to host our sessions in, in Burj Al Arab, and all of a sudden we can't put on these, these briefings. Mm. Now, it's not the only part of what we do, but members saw it as an important part. So sure. I had some, you know, seriously, sleepless nights, paying salaries and thinking, what are we going to do? And over the course of a few days, then we shifted and we created a, a virtual conference with His Excellency Abdullah bin Tuk, the Minister for Economy. And this all happened, guys, like, you know, in, in a matter of in a matter of days, mm, wow. being able to go to them and say, you, you, you need to hear the collective thoughts of the private sector to hear what they're doing in terms of investment. Remember, this was at the stage where yeah. we're all kind of in What's lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What on earth is actually going on around the planet at the yeah. moment? Everybody needed data points. To Everybody make was, yeah, yeah. you know, just from a life perspective, never mind yeah. business, we were, we were <clears> in <throat> this. Holding onto their seats. Like, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> so in, in a matter of days, we were able to talk to him create this virtual conference, hire a TV studio. Wow. We get him to beam in. We'd have over a thousand leaders in a virtual audience able to share what they're planning on mm. doing in terms of investment, in terms of cuts that a lot yeah. of them had to make. So then you're able to collate and disaggregate that data, give it to the government and say, this mm. is what this sector is doing. This is what this sector yeah. is doing. These are the policies that they recommend. Mm. And to see how quickly they moved, and the reason why I explain that is to go back to your to your question. Off the back of that, we were able to produce, you know, throughout the it was over a year, multiple briefing, private briefing papers for the government to say, look, this is what these CEOs are thinking, this yeah. is what they're going to do, and kept it nice and succinct. And this is this is information that you you require. And based off that, and of course, other, other consultations that they would have had, and I'm sure other advisors and consultants, I'm not saying that we, we did this, but we played our small role in, mm -hmm. in contributing to, to help us all get through this. And off the back of that, then, you've seen this realization that there is, COVID has created a, a situation where the tectonic plates of how the world actually operates 
have changed, mm. right? You yeah. had this massive acceleration towards um, towards digital transformation. Um, you had this realization that there's going to be a regionalization of supply chains. Mm -hmm. There's going to be an inclination towards towards nationalism and protectionism. Yep. So you had these big overarching long-term kind of secular trends that were taking place. And we recognize that these are going to wash down onto mm. different in, into different regions and into different markets. And the UAE is very well placed, given those trends, to become the center of a global digital economy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they moved so quickly on that. And then at the same time, Simultaneously, you had the, the narrative of, of the metaverse, Web 3.0, mm. blockchain, which already Dubai had kind of staked a narrative claim on that. Yeah. Um, and now what we're seeing, obviously, with the metaverse assembly, and again, His Excellency Abdullah bin Tuk, the Minister for Economy, has been um, at the center of this. His Excellency Khalfan Belhul at Dubai Future Foundation, in bringing these different stakeholders together to to focus on the global digital economy, but also look at what are the big overarching future trends from a digital perspective mm -hmm. that are going to happen around the world and how they'll impact us here. And now we're at the stage where, based on some of the conversations that, that I've had, Dubai and the UAE, and particularly Dubai, seems to have figured out its intention towards the, the metaverse mm -hmm. because currently it's all up here around the world right yeah. there's a lot of a lot of buzz around it but the reality is is from a government perspective from a public policy point of view how do you take advantage of that yeah. and for a place like dubai which is open prosperous and tolerant right mm -hmm. dubai is basically a platform for anyone who has aspirations to achieve at a high level Come to Dubai and we create an independent platform for you to succeed. Mm. Um, that's a very powerful narrative given what's happening around the world today. And, and do you see that as uh, in the same way that Silicon Valley became that ecosystem for tech companies? Do you see Dubai as potentially becoming that ecosystem for, for Web3? It, 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 it Certainly, uh, we had lunch with Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook. She was in town. I'm terrible with time frames. About three months ago, yeah. Yeah, before, yeah. The, before the summer or so. And that was the first thing she said at the, at the lunch. Mm. So she knows a lot more about that than, <laughs> than I do. She's a better place to say. Um, what, what you can visibly see is how Dubai is becoming a lodestone for, for Web 3.0 and blockchain <laughs> and the the crypto guys as well. Now, obviously they're going through their, their winter at the moment, but that doesn't mean in terms of a longer term overarching kind of trend that's taken yeah. place. There's a big advantage for Dubai to be open, nimble, and say to these industries that are going to literally change all of the mm. other industries, mm. say to them, look, we're interested in what you do and we want to work with you. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll figure out sensible regulations that make us all win and you become a you you come here to this yeah. we can act as a hub for a hub for the future yeah and that's that's what dubai has been a big beneficiary of of flux around the world mm. you know mm. his, historically dubai has been a, a, a from a regional point of view um you know if you if you think back if you go throughout history even if you think the the british 
now this is going back, the British bombed Ras al Khaimah. Ras al Khaimah was the most powerful emirate at the time, right? Mm -hmm. This is about 1819. And there's, there's a great painting about it in the in the museum in the museum and basically that's fractured off the emirate and that was really the the trading the trading base of the region now again the region was very underdeveloped then but what it did again talking about the implications of history and and making sense of them a very long time after the actual event that created a vacuum that allowed Dubai to actually rise Dubai, because yeah. then you had in, in 1900 you had punitive taxes introduced on the southern uh, coast of Iran mm -hmm. and um, the Sheikh Sheikh Hasher here in Dubai at the time recognized an opportunity you have all of these traders commercial yeah. nows yeah. we'll we'll reduce uh, customs duties again a similar yeah. model mm -hmm. we'll reduce them here and these traders start to come over and throughout if you think of most of the major the major events in in recent history by and large dubai has been a, a beneficiary of them like think of the mm. the dry port right saddam goes into kuwait in 1990 the u.s get involved in 1991 and at the time the, the advisors were saying to the to rulers here, we don't need dry docks, we don't need this. Mm. No, this is what we're going to do. And then you have a flux of Kuwaitis who, who left Kuwait, came to Dubai, were shown amazing hospitality, um, and they started to invest in Dubai. The, the Iran-Iraq war in 1988, right? Similar, mm. the dry dock was, mm -hmm. was being built. People said they didn't need it. A war breaks out and a war that actually starts to use specific types of missiles that damages ships, but not necessarily sinks them, Ugh. right? Or they have more time to, to, to rescue them. And they're coming into the dry dock in, mm. in Dubai. Similarly, you move forward through all the major events. 9-11, very sad, tragic event. Yeah. A lot of the capital outflows coming out of the region into the U.S., partly from this part of the world. Yeah. There was reticence of putting it into the U.S., but certainly from the U.S., yeah. there was reticence about accepting that. Mm. They needed to put that investment somewhere else. Mm. Where do they look at? They look at, at Dubai, mm. the Arab Spring. Yeah. Think of the Arab yeah. Spring. Yeah. All this <clears throat> flux across all these countries. You have literally hundreds of millions of incredibly talented young Arabs looking for a place that gives them stability, a lifestyle, mm. and gets to live the way that they want to want to live. Yeah. And that's the great mm. thing about Dubai. You can live multiple different types of lifestyles in Dubai. Mm -hmm. And you want to do that? Great. Yeah. You do that. You want to do this? Great. Nobody cause any trouble. Yeah. And then there's no yeah, trouble. Yeah. And, and it's in true tolerance. I think the, you know, when we talk about how Dubai people are very tolerant, or Emirati people are very tolerant and acceptance to different uh, cultures, it's very evident. Yeah. We, were, we were talking to the CEO of uh, uh, Dubai Film Commission. And he was like, look, you can come to Dubai and film anything, whether it's from Bollywood producers and directors or even you can make Dubai look like France. You can make Dubai look like any other, you know, any other country. So make make Dubai whatever you want to make it, and and it's an open platform. And I think that sort of mentality allows for so many opportunities. And and um, the opportunity for for Dubai then is to be able to bring all these people in that that want that right. Nine yeah. eleven. Yeah. You have Russia Ukraine again. Very yeah. sad event. 
that what, what's happening is historically you saw a trend of flux in the region. Dubai was a beneficiary of that. <clears throat> now you're seeing a trend of flux out into the into the global economy, and Dubai becomes a, a, Still, a benefit yeah. of that mm. because it's simply a place where if you want to come, it's safe, you have a great lifestyle, and you you operate within the rules. Yeah. And when you look at what's happening around the rest of the world, th there's a very interesting narrative for the end of this year and most likely into next year for particularly the GCC and even parts of the broader Middle East as well. T touching on that, the there is globally, there can be a perception issue about the Middle East and certainly when it comes to, to finance inflows, uh, foreign direct investment, et cetera. Um, you're very much, you're a vocal proponent of the positivity and the opportunity that sits here in the GCC and in, in the Middle East. Um, you have access and, and you um, you have access to data that, that many don't and certainly don't see. So in a lot of the conversations we have, people are, are unsure about the Middle East. People are unsure about um, should they be investing there? Should they be moving there? Should they be bringing companies, moving families, et cetera? Um, I've been fortunate to spend time with you with regards to um, the, the the events that you've mentioned and the, and the data that you're showing that shows um, that the true story on ground and what the data is telling us versus the perception globally is, is quite different. Mm. Why why do you see, or can you justify through data, your positioning with regards to why Dubai and the, and the GCC is such a positive, or has such a positive outlook over the next two years? Yeah, sure. Two years, I, I don't know if I'd go two years because you start sure. moving into you know high levels of, of uncertainty. What, what I'd say is, What's been interesting for me, say over the last kind of 15 years, and especially the last 10 years, as part of our membership, our member is usually the regional CEO overseeing Middle East or Middle East and Africa. And they'll often have their global CEO come to town and they'll mm -hmm. ask me to go for breakfast with them or lunch and kind of share thoughts on what's happening in the, in the region. And I've been kind of living in this bizarro world of late. Mm -hmm. because, you know, two nights ago, we, we had a dinner with the global CEO of a big American multinational in health insurance, $174 billion in revenue, big, huge company. The week before, at breakfast with uh, amazing female CEO from construction industry on the engineering side. Um, there's another now, and I'm, I'm blanking, but over the last two weeks, you... What, what, how that conversation has been very different, and this ties into your mm. question, don't worry. <laughs> how this has been very different is that historically, when I'm given these talks, what you have is a global CEO who's coming to the Middle East and, and coming to the Middle East with a lot of misconceptions. And, and over the course of those 10 years, a lot of valid reasons as well, right, mm. in terms of flux in the region. Because think about it. If you look over the last 10 years or so, and you look at the Middle East, we've about, on average, around 5% of the, the world's population, depending on your definition of the Middle East. And we've had about 70, 70, 70% 70 of all fatalities from interstate conflict, right? So 5% of the population, wow. basically all the conflict, and that gets amplified and multiplied on CNN, BBC, God yeah. forbid, Fox News. <laughs> and you have a lot of these very powerful individuals sitting in advanced, rich, industrialized economies, watching these mm. news stations or getting it through the internet. And they're, they're just looking at the Middle East through this very, very narrow crack in the wall, right? Yeah. Mm. Which is, let's, let's say it's CNN. 
So therefore, over the years, the kind of questions I get has been always this negative perception. Hmm. Yet people who are here on the ground, particularly the regional CEO, understands that the Middle East is a very heterogeneous place. Yeah. It's not just one block of countries. Yeah. And, and similarly, why you wouldn't stop doing business in Luxembourg now because of what's happening in Ukraine, yeah. you're not going to stop doing business in like a place like the UAE because, yeah. God forbid, what might be happening in another part of the region, right? But that yeah. never seemed to kind of seep true. Now, to your point and following up to where I am now, I find myself in this very unusual situation where these CEOs, when they look out at the world, the Middle East is an oasis of, of <laughs> a, at least a more calmer outlook yeah. from an economic point of view. And the reason for that, and this now answers your question, the reason for that is very simple. If you're sitting, say, in, you know, in London or New York or Tokyo or wherever, and these a global CEO or indeed some of your community that's thinking about, should I move here? Should sure. I set up a yeah. business here? It's all the same narrative. If they're looking at the world, what are you looking at over the next couple of years, right? You're looking at a global economy that's slowing down, if not heading into recession. You have the EU mm. looks inevitably heading into recession. Mm. You have the UK behaving like an emerging market heading for recession. You have the US that's willing to tip its economy into recession through interest rates in order to tame inflation. You have China with its dynamic zero COVID policy so it's kind of clamping down on what it can actually actually yeah. do but i'd expect to see some movement on that there might even be a, announcements after the big meeting um which will be next month or so mm -hmm. but anyway the, that will remain in place till march you have sadly africa dealing with a, a fuel and in terms of energy a food and a, a potential finance crisis so you have a global economy that's in a pretty precarious situation there's areas in APAC that are performing well and India is doing well um, and then you look out and you have a war in Ukraine in Europe which could very likely end up being a partitioned country in Europe mm. right mm. similar to the Korean Peninsula in 1945 similar to Cyprus in 1974. So you, you've got this huge geopolitical volcano in the middle of Europe that's, yeah. that's not going away. You have geopolitical tensions between the US and China mm -hmm. uh, over Taiwan, which are only going to get worse when Congress, I think, will pass the, the Taiwan Policy Act, which will basically reconfigure relations between the US and Taiwan, <clears throat> the biggest overhaul since 1979. And that vis-a-vis -vis the relationship between China and, and the US yeah. is mm -hmm. incredibly significant. And you have the US playing the Taiwan card against China. And I don't think they understand just what an emotional response that could mm. invoke from China. So that's the biggest geopolitical flashpoint in the world. Hmm. You have missiles flying over the Korean Peninsula over the last couple yeah, of days. Yeah, true. You have a global inflation rate that's at 40, a 40 year high. You have supply chains that still aren't fixed. You have an energy crisis in Europe. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, we could potentially be facing a emerging market debt crisis next year, right? Because when you think about what's happening, you have, Interest rates increasing in the in the rich world, mm -hmm. particularly in the U.S. 
And what that basically means is you're getting capital being sucked and hoovered out of these emerging markets and into dollar-denominated assets in, in the US. So the dollar is getting really, really strong off the back of that, right? And what that means is you've had over the last 10 years or so, emerging markets with dollar-denominated debt because they can't issue debt in their own currency. Mm -hmm. And those guys are not going to be able to pay that debt. If you're an emerging market, mm. heavily indebted with a current account deficit, which just means you're dependent on inflows of foreign cash, Hmm. What you're going to find out now, as Warren Buffett says, is who has been swimming with no trunks on. The hmm. tide is hmm. going to go out, and now you're going to find out. Yeah. And that is against a backdrop of a world that is completely changing from a geopolitical perspective. We're heading for, we're heading into this era of multipolarity, hmm. where China, India, Russia wants the world to have influence and power split up into, into different spheres. And because of that, China is becoming one of the world's largest creditors mm. to emerging markets, rivaling the IMF, could be larger than the IMF. And what they're doing is they're giving relatively secretive relative to the IMF, mm -hmm. secretive loans to emerging markets with high debt vulnerability. So we don't even know what the the real problem is we're in this debt vortex mm. and it's hard to figure out what it is we have over well over 300 trillion dollars in total outstanding debt wow. um, and that's about over around 360 percent of global gdp and compared to 20 years ago or so where it was about 200 percent and nobody yeah. is really we, we've printed more money mm. since COVID. it's inconceivable unfathomable nobody if if we got into the details of how much money has been printed it's hard for our, our it's hard for our brains to actually conceive what has been printed because now we just hear trillions of dollars yeah. and yeah. it doesn't mean anything to us when you get down into it you realize ah, okay if the music stops on this it yeah, could yeah. be really really bad and that's kind of what we're looking at over the course of next year so to Tom's point of then, well, how does the Middle East sit in, in the middle of all of that? What you see is the Middle East and particularly places like Dubai, thanks to policy and strategy um, and thanks to transformation of what's taken place in Saudi, they're big beneficiaries of this. So we obviously Russia, Ukraine has impacted commodity markets. We've had oil prices increase significantly. You know, we've oil price average of $100 a barrel mm. uh, this year. And if you think of a place like a place like Saudi is pumping, let's say on average, and this is just for the benefit of, of calculation, but let's say bumping, pumping over 10 million barrels, okay? Mm. And you're looking at an average oil price of $100 a barrel. Saudi's gonna bring in about $370 billion in revenues from from oil right it's a billion dollars mm. every single day yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it, yeah. it's it's insane um if i remember it's like 42 million dollars <clears throat> every hour or so it's yeah. an, it's yeah. it's an incredible mm. inconceivable amount of cash that's that's flown in and even the imf over the next four years states that additional oil revenues for the middle east for producers will be about $1.3 trillion. 
Um, this is larger than the GDP of Spain. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it, that's 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 more than the combined av- annual revenues for Apple, Amazon, Facebook, mm. Google, mm. Exxon Mobil, and Tesla flown in. Wow. And that is also it's flowing into infrastructure projects, which is obviously beneficiary to a multiplier effect in terms of economics for the economy. And it's also flown into sovereign wealth funds. Mm. And if you look at the Sovereign Wealth Fund Institute and you aggregate all the data, you see that you're looking at almost, now I'm rounding up a bit, but you're looking at almost $4 trillion in wealth in sovereign wealth funds Mm. in the Middle East, which is larger than the economy of the UK. Mm. Mm. So that's where you start looking at, okay, where do we sit relative to the rest of the world? You have long-term transformational vision, big big projects that are coming out of, of the region, particularly the GCC. And then you have an, a, 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 a talent um, inflow from around the world coming into places like the UAE. And that's why you're seeing, you know, you have a lucrative real estate market probably getting to the higher echelons of that. Maybe we start to see a correction, which I think will be healthy for for the overall economy. Yeah, for all of yeah, us. All of yeah. <laughs> uh, you have a very lucrative IPO market in the Middle yeah. East, which is the first half of the year was outpacing, uh, outpacing Europe. Um, and in, in general, what you have is a very high level of, of optimism, mm. um, partly driven by what is, from an economic perspective, mm. a generational type of opportunity of what's happening in, in Saudi. Now, whether companies want to do that or don't want to do mm. that, that's up to them. But there's a, there's a generational type opportunity because Saudi has, and MBS has managed to do a great job in terms of shifting the, the momentum in terms of the, the gravitational power into, into Saudi. People's mm. energy and focus is moving, moving into Saudi. So I think that kind of keeps the region ticking over nicely for the next couple of years. I think that if there's a global recession, the big question should be, how does that impact us here in the mm. region? And historically, if I'm an entrepreneur, or I'm a member of your community, I'm looking at these big overarching trends and trying to make sense. Well, what does it mean for me, right? Just, just sitting here. The things you want to pay attention to is, okay, how is that economic recession going to impact our main source of revenue in this part of the world, which is hydrocarbons? Mm. And what will it do in terms of currency exchanges? Um, and then what will it do in terms of private consumption for us here on the ground? It's kind of looking at those things and how they trickle down. And if you look at the oil price, it's very difficult to, to tell because you would imagine on the one hand that a, a recession would lead to a significant downturn in the, in the oil price. But then you start looking at specific events that are on the horizon. Europe is going to continue to ban more mm. Uh, oil imports from Russia in kind of December. You have below 2 million barrels in spare capacity of oil. So there's a tightness in the market. You've had because of COVID and in, and what unfortunately has been a maybe a naive acceleration towards net zero meant mm. that IOCs, international oil companies, haven't been investing as much as they should. So yeah. there's a tightness in that market. You have OECD countries ceasing to cut sales from strategic reserves. 
I think next month in in November. Um, so there's 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 a clamp. Mm. You had the meeting with in Vienna with OPEC, further clamp. Um, and then you have mm. China potentially coming back online <laughs> next year. Yeah. So you have a recession. You could have yeah. the oil prices come down. Equally, another bump <laughs> Jack, <laughs> jacked up by China. Equally, yeah. if China comes yeah. online and that tightness is there, yeah, that's why it's so difficult. You, you're better off looking at it in scenarios where you you could you could have a scenario where mild-ish recession. I don't know if there's even such a thing. Mild-ish recession. Say oil prices kind of go down to sixty dollars a barrel in, mm. in the region. Things slow down a bit, but it's enough to, you know, enough to have a kind of prosperous decade or so. And, and the surplus would last for yeah. A the fiscal of time. the fiscal positions of, of the, of the government has improved yeah. and all of that. But equally, the alternative scenario, which sounds crazy, but isn't inconceivable, would be that next year you have oil prices at one hundred and sixty dollars a barrel. Wow. Mm. Um, because there's so much flux in the world so much uncertainty and it's hard to read everything so yeah. if i'm in your community i'm looking at the oil price i'm looking at where is the dollar because we're pegged to the dollar in yeah. the gcc yeah. Yeah. with the exception of kuwait which is pegged to a basket which we assume is heavily weighted to the dollar um so you're looking mm. at that and depending on what type of business you're in you're asking yourself okay what does a strong dollar mean for me sitting here it probably is a good thing if you're earning in dirhams and you're say from the uk mm. and yeah. because the pound is obviously significant uh, has dropped significantly the euro has dropped significantly mm. but equally that's probably from a personal point of view if you're in yeah. say tom's situation but equally and vice versa you could be in a situation where depending where your demand comes for your mark for your business where say you're like in tourism, tourism and yeah, retail yeah. <clears throat> and then suddenly tourists from from europe from the uk are, yeah. are 20 percent 20 percent poorer so there's there's a lot to 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 manage and it won't all be sunshine and lollipops yeah. in, in the middle east there's you know other challenges at, at play but relative to the rest of the world we're in a good place and i would say yeah. we're in a good place to until maybe q4 of next year that mm. if there is that global recession, then that starts to to slow us down. That's that's where we sit at this point in yeah. time. When you look at around the world, that's a very, that's a very thorough like market analysis yeah. and a global <laughs> global eco analysis. That there. little uh, <laughs> you get an invoice for 15, yeah, yeah. fifteen thousand dollars now. <laughs> I was about to say, I appreciate that. that. That's no, going to no. go viral when we put that out. Um, mate, look, we've uh, we've overrun a little bit, and I know that you're very focused on time, and you're a very busy guy. Mm. Um, we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Uh, we know that, uh, as you said, um, there are there are global boards that spend a lot of money on on getting the advice that you've given to our community. So, on behalf of everyone that's listening, we really appreciate it. It's um, it's refreshing because, uh, as I said earlier, so mm. many of us read the headlines in the various news channels that that are coming out of more established economies, and they're not looking good. Um, it looks worse and worse every time you click on that. So, it's great to have a more positive perspective around our home and yeah. you know what what's actually happening on ground and to be honest what's actually relevant to us because we can read all the headlines from the US and Europe and mm. but do they really affect us yeah. over here do they yeah. affect our businesses over here are we making decisions based on those two subconsciously we get affected from a negative standpoint by consuming that content when we're actually mm -hmm. trying to make decisions that are relevant here uh, so it's great to be able to share positive 
uh, news that's not just an opinion. It's actually backed on on, on data uh, and, and grounded in reality. So thank you for that. Thank you, guys. And this is the power of network and the power of real connection, right? Mm. Because I, I could be sitting somewhere else, but because of you two guys, I come and yeah. sit here. That's the difference, right? Yeah. Appreciate so, that. Thanks, appreciate guys. That. Thank, thank you very much. Cheers.